Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I am joined with my better pod half, Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today we are bringing you an interesting true crime topic. We are going to be talking about the women of Murderess Row today. Or if you don't know who that is, it's the real people. The musical Chicago is based off it. Yes. But spoilers, this is another big movie Tara has not seen. So that means nothing to me. <laughs> Except when I watch Drunk History. <laughs> it's true. Such a good episode. It is a great episode. And I cannot promise I will break out into song. If she does, it will be in here. Sorry, it will guys. be in here. And guess what? Our guest host, Mr. Cricket, is gone. Hopefully. Well, it's gone because I'm sitting on the floor. Jessica moved. <laughs> in my dining room against the wall because my husband really loves the damn cricket and I love my husband. So it's fine. It's fine. But if you are new here, hello and welcome. Thank you for checking out our show. And if you're a returning spookster, thank you for continuing to listen to us and support us. We love you guys. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can search the handle at Three Spooked Girls, or you can head to the link tree in the show notes. That takes you to everything Three Spooked Girls universe. We would love to hang out with you. We have an amazing Facebook group that Jessica and I are really active in. This is true. It's like our little pod child. <laughs> of sorts. We do watch parties. We hang out in there. There's a lot of a lot of great stuff going on over there. If you would like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash three spooked girls or the link tree as well. And I have to fucking say in our time today, we hit our goal of 100 patrons. I cannot believe it. I know. Oh, my God. I am blown away right now. Whew. I don't even know how to react. We've literally been freaking out. It's now like nine, ten o'clock our time. We have been freaking out all day long. We cannot believe that so many of you guys support our show in this way. And we still even when we see downloads and stuff, we can't believe that many people listen. It's crazy to us. We're like, what the fuck? But we love and appreciate you so, so, so much. But if you are newer or you are not on Patreon and you would like to know what that's all about, we have tiers starting as little as a dollar and they go up. Every patron gets at least one bonus episode a month. Two and up, they get Jessica Slaughter's movie reviews and plot lines, or just Slaughter's, and they get those twice a month. And now, because we hit the goal, we are going to be bringing five and up patrons a unnamed segment <laughs> because I've written them all down and I haven't chose yet. They're all so good, guys. But there's going to be on paranormal and haunted objects, spooky things extra over there. And I'm also going to be bringing you a coffee suggestion. So that'll be up once a month. And then there's also live streams. 
other fun stuff that you can check out. Swag, of course, all kinds of fun things. So yeah, again, thank you guys so much, all 100 of you. Oh my God, it's just so weird. Thank you. Thank you. It's weird in the best way possible. I can't put into words how much it means to us. Right. Tara and I have spent most of the day just trying to conceptualize and being like, why do these people like us? We're weirdos. (laughs) But we love that you love us and we love you guys. So it's really a pleasure to do this podcast for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get too mushy into that, we're going to go ahead and take a quick promo break and we will be right back. Hi, this is Crime and Anxiety Podcast with Shannon and Chloe. Together, we are going to be discussing all kinds of true crime stories and our struggles with anxiety. Which sometimes gets worse as we talk about true crime stories. For sure. (laughs) All right. So you can find us on all your podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, all the ones that you love. And you can find us on social media. On Instagram, please follow us at Crime and Anxiety Pod. On Twitter, at Crime Anxiety Pod. And you can shoot us an email Crime and Anxiety Podcast at gmail.com. And that's all spelled out. Until next time, y'all stay, stay safe. safe. Uh, we were actually, uh, me and my friend here. It points to a cat. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, your friend's with a cat. Yes, he's, he's one of those uh, Dreamlands cats. So uh, he's more than a cat. Yes, and he is very lucky to consider myself his friend. What did he say? He said that I was lucky to consider myself his friend. Oh, okay. I, I do feel that way. Okay. Uh, I don't have too many friends. You really aren't that bright, are you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's me, Adam, the DM over at Microphones and Monsters. You just got done listening to a short clip from our show. Microphones and Monsters is a Cthulhu Mythos 5th edition actual play podcast. We ask you to join us every week, Monday and Friday. You can find us on your favorite podcatcher, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find all of our links at microphonesandmonsters.com. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. We are going to kick off this part of the episode with our drink for the week. Yes. And since we're heading back to the 1920s and the jazz era, I thought we would start it off with a, because it's summertime too. So strawberry rose gin fizz. Ooh come in super fancy and it is brought to you by the website desserts for two made by christine lane so go check it out tomorrow it'll be on the socials mm-hmm. all right so like we explained we are going to be talking about the women of murderess row or the real women of the chicago movie story thing <laughs> it's a great musical yes musical i'm like i cannot think of the word god dang it But basically, Jessica and I each chose one of the main gals. And then we're going to do kind of essentially like a round robin with a couple other ones that are honorable mentions. They don't have quite as much publications and whatnot. But we did pick out some interesting gals, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to hand it to Jessica and she's going to tell us about the first one. Yes. So (laughs) for those those who are playing along at home, my murderess. Her name in real life is Belva Gardner. But if you have seen the play or the musical, because it was first a play and then a musical, it would be Velma Kelly or Velma Wall, depending on the variation. 
So Belva was born Belva Eleonora Boo Singer. <laughs> Her last name is Boo Singer. Oh, man. And she was born on September 14th, 1884 in Lynchfield, Illinois, to Mary Jane Clark and Charles Bo Singer. She was a cabaret singer and... Her professional stage name was Bella Brown. And another fun fact about her is that she was divorced three times, two by the same person. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. She was first married when she was younger to a man named Overbeck. But in 1917, she married William Gardner, who was 20 years older than her. He was a wealthy industrialist from Crown Point, Indiana. But five months into the relationship, he would have it annulled or he sued to have the marriage annulled because Bella's divorce had not gone through from her first husband. But then they got married again. Hmm. But they would separate because otherwise it would make the story very even more awkward. So uh, just an adding additional an additional person into the storyline. Her name is Maureen Dallas Watkins, and she was a Yale graduate who was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And she was assigned the Cook County Jail cases to do with like the women on murderous row and like to look into them. And so she's going to do a lot of the interviewing of these women and getting a lot of these quotes. Mm -hmm. And she would be part of the reason they became such. Well, she is the fucking reason they became so sensationalized if you don't believe us watch the drunk history mm -hmm. so on march 11th 1924 belva allegedly shot and killed her lover walter law walter law was a married man and he was an auto salesman according to court testimony the timeline was given that belva and walter got drunk at the gingham cafe they drove home and then later the car was found in front of the house. Walter's body was hanging over the steering wheel and her gun, Belva's gun, was on the floor. She was actually found in her apartment with her clothes covered in blood, maintaining that she was so drunk she couldn't remember anything. So if you are playing along at home, this is where the story is where Velma's like, not until I washed my hands did I, or like, you know. Wash the blood off my hands or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wash the blood off my hands. Did I even know they were dead <laughs> but she also said that at the cafe walter proposed that they flip a coin to see who should take the first shot at one another and that she had talked him out of that so she was trying to create this like crazy like he was so drunk and weird and blah 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 like that kind of a timeline the manager of the bar or of the cafe because remember bars are not allowed because it's the 20s and prohibition mm-hmm is named Curly Brown, and he said that Belva and Walter were there and they had some words because apparently she danced with Curly and there was basically like some inappropriate touching. Ooh. And it was like, I think to make the other one jealous. Mm. But when Brown was questioned, he said they didn't have Jen. They just had ginger ale. We don't allow Jen. And they didn't display a gun in the cafe. though. They may have talked about one, for I always got my eyes peeled for guns. They were a nice couple. I'm certainly shocked. Certainly. Certainly. I mean, it is the 1920s, <laughs> so there's no way he's getting on, <laughs> he's no way he's getting up on the witness stand to be like, yeah, I was pouring him gin all night. They got him super drunk. Mm -mm. <laughs> he would also be arrested. <laughs> Yeah. So, like I said, they found him that day on March 11th, and he was sprawled out in the front seat of Belva's car with a bottle of gin and a gun laying beside him. The motives 
It was said that Walter feared Belva because, okay, so like according to his friends, especially this one friend, pale, middle initial E, Goodwin, Walter tried to break off the relationship several times, but she would refuse to let him go. In fact, he said, Walter told me Monday that he planned to take more life insurance out because Miss Gardner threatened to kill him. Three weeks before, he told me that she locked him in her flat with her and threatened to stab him with a knife unless he stayed there. So, Belva might have a little bit of a temper. Teeny bit. A little bit. Belva was like, he killed himself and actually tried to, like, spin the story that she wasn't that attached to him. Mm, Got you. So, Belva gave a lot of interviews. In fact, all of the women at Cook's County Jail gave a lot of interviews. Mm -hmm. Because with the journalist Watkins going out there and interviewing them, like, she started with someone else that Tara will talk about later. And then her boss is like, no, I want, like... I love in the uh, Drunk History episode, they're like, I want the juice. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. But, you know, basically, they wanted something that people were going to read. Mm -hmm. And spinning these beautiful young women on death row for murdering people is a good sensational story. Oh, totally, totally. So in one of her interviews she gave, she said, no woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it. Because there are plenty more. (laughs) Because there are always plenty more. Walter was just a kid, 29. I'm 38. Why should I have worried whether he loved me or whether he left me? Gin and guns. Either one is bad enough. But together they get you in the dickens of a mess, don't they? So she was weird. Let's just say that. Hmm. So basically Belva was trying to say that because her and Walter were party people, that they basically would gallivant around town and drink and party and then black out. And this was kind of a lifestyle that could be backed up. Like, people knew that that's what they did. She was a cabaret singer. That was her scene. She was very heavily into jazz, which was like, you didn't listen to jazz if you were a good, modest girl. Put it that way. Like I said, she claimed she got really drunk and blacked out. And because of that, she couldn't remember until she heard a great explosion and then Walter toppled against her fucking dead. And like I said, media had like a seriously, it was like, this is what viral videos were back then. But it was like newspaper articles that people had to read. There were no clickable pictures. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, she was being covered in the news. And when she was asked about the trial, she said, I'm feeling very well, Belva told the reporters. Naturally, I should prefer to receive you all in my apartment. Jails are a horrid place. But she looked around and (laughs) emanated a small laugh or emitted a small laugh. One must take the best of such things. So basically, these women were like in prison. And most people like today, you get like, here's your uniform and here's your, you know, your three squares and a cot type thing. But not these women. Like, people would come and, like, propose to her. People would bring her flowers. People wanted to know what she was wearing because she was considered, like, the best dressed there. She had, like, all these super nice clothes. And then someone Tara's going to talk about, those two were, like, ruled the roost, essentially. They basically made the media fall in love with them. And that's how they basically saved their own skin. Because they became a household name. Yeah. So, basically, her defense team was... Like, this powerhouse, like, at the time that they took her case, they were, like, 28 and 0. Like, they had never lost a case. I was pretty freaking impressed. And basically, they were just saying, like, 
The state can't prove she did this. Like, yes, it's her gun. Yes, it's her car. Yes, they were at her house. But it's the jazz and gin. I don't know why sipping on gin and juice just popped into my head. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, the defense didn't have an opening statement. They rested without calling or offering a single witness for this event. They waived closing arguments. The jury heard the state's plea of a just verdict. They listened well, but basically the judge said that it had to be beyond all reasonable doubt. Like, basically, you shall find the defendant not guilty if there's reasonable doubt. They basically sat there and they did that. So did the bitch kill her lover? Probably. Did she get away with it? Yes, because she got a not guilty verdict. And if you remember earlier, Walter was married and his wife, Frida Law, was in the courtroom that day. And she half fainted and was sobbing. And she was quoted saying, there's no justice in Illinois. No justice. Walter paid. Why shouldn't she? So she was very fucking scorned. So, in 1925, following her acquittal, Belva remarried William again. And in 1926, (laughs) filed for divorce again. He filed for divorce again, claiming she was abusive and an alcoholic. Hmm. We could have told you that, dude. Right. Also, he made claims that she threatened to kill him after he found her with another guy. Ooh. But she did not stay out of jail forever because she was convicted of drunk driving in November of 1926. But by 1930, she was, you know, good to go. And she actually got back with William again. And they moved to Europe. And then when he died in 1948, she moved to Pasadena, California and lived with her sister. And then she died of natural causes on May 14th, 1965 at the age of 80. Wow. It pays to have a good lawyer and have nice clothes, apparently. Ugh. Okay, well, I am going to talk about the other half of this duo that Jessica was alluding to. Beulah and Anne. Is that how you say it? Whatever you want to. Jess is like, I don't know either. Okay, Beulah is what we're going with, aka the beauty of the block is what she was deemed as. She was born as Beulah May Sheriff in Owensboro, Kentucky on November 18th, 1899 to Mary and John R. Sheriff. Beulah was described as always wanting to live in the big city so much that she craved it, is what it said in articles. And I was like, puke. I don't know why I don't like that phrasing, but I just don't. (laughs) (laughs) Something about it. I'm not a fan. Anyway, but before making it over to, uh, you know, Chicago, it's what she deemed as her big city, she would get married to a newspaper linotype operator named Perry Stevens. Now, if you're like me and wondering, what does that job even mean? Well, this meant he worked with the linotype machines by entering text on a 90-character keyboard. And according to Wiki, so this is wrong, don't at me, the machine assembles matrices, which are molds for the letter forms in a line. And it was said that the machines revolutionized typesetting with it, especially in newspaper publishing, making it possible for a relatively small number of operators to set type for so many pages on a daily basis. So side little history thing for you there. But anyways, so they got married and they had a child together. They had a son. I did the math backwards because at the time of her arrest and stuff. That's no spoiler. He was about seven years old. So he was born in roughly 1917. Unfortunately for Beulah, she became so bored of the mom life and uh, wife life. She said that she preferred partying, which included dancing and drinking. Not surprised because she's one of those jazz gals, which makes me think jazzy gals from Schitt's Creek. As soon as you said that, I was like, jazzy gals. Right? (laughs) 
And one day, Perry pretty much had enough of this and decided it was time to kick her to the curb and divorced her ass. And also with their divorce, he actually kept their child. Good. Yes. I was like, well, good, because she's saying she didn't even want him. Shortly after the divorce, Beulah would meet her second husband, Albert, a.k.a. Al. And that's where her last name comes from that I can't pronounce. It's fine. Al was a mechanic who also had the goal or dream of wanting to live in a big city. So this is when she would end up moving to Chicago. She moved there with Al. And while living there, Al worked at a garage because, like I said, he was a mechanic. And Beulah worked at Tenant's Model Laundry as the bookkeeper. And she was also an aspiring jazz singer slash performer. And what's her character's name in Chicago? Roxy Hart. Her name is Roxy Hart. There you go. Was that the one that's Renee Zellweger or was that a different person? Who played her? Yeah, it's Renee Zellweger. The person I was talking about was played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Right. Gotcha. And again, after a while, Beulah would run into the same predicament she had before. She would be pretty bored with life uh, because, you know, nothing exciting was happening, according to her. So she decided it was time to add an affair into the mix. And she would have said affair with the manager of Tenant's Model Laundry named Harry Calstead. Now, she kept these two parts of her life separate because she didn't want to get rid of Al. Al was her financial security because she only worked like part time. So she wanted to have her cake and eat it too. And everything was going great. Harry liked to do the things she did. And uh, eventually that, you know, that didn't really last too long because one day Beulah got mad at Harry because he wasn't spending money on her like she thought he should. Oh, damn. Mm hmm. So flash forward to April 3rd, 1924. Beulah, she's enjoying an afternoon off work and she uh, invites Harry over to her home on 817 East 46th Street. According to an early story, and I say early because she changes her story a few times, Henry and her spoke on the phone earlier that morning talking about having wine and hanging out and things like that. He supposedly came by, picked up the money, went to the store, came back. During this version of things, it was said that everything was fine for about like an hour or so. And then they got into an argument. And it was said that the argument was basically he was saying he didn't want to be exclusive. He had more than one girlfriend, which, number one, she's married, so she can't really. It's like pot, meat, kettle. You cannot really bitch about that. I mean, true. Also, in some articles I was reading, it sounded like he might have been married as well. I don't know. The sources are a little limited with some of these stories, but you take what little details you find. Right. And this first account, and this is also why I was thinking he possibly could have been married. This account I'm telling you right now, Beulah told Henry's brother-in-law, which could be one of two things. It could be a wife's brother or his sister's husband. It could be either side. So Truth. Don't know. So she said that there was a gun on the bed and then they both went after it and she shot him while he was trying to put on his coat and hat to leave. And once he was shot, he basically said something along the lines of, oh, God, you shot me to her and then falls down. Both reach for the gun. Both reach for the gun. (laughs) Sorry, guys. It's fine. After this, she apparently decided to turn on some tunes, more specifically a Foxtrot record called Hulu. And put this on repeat while he died. And according to her, this was a span of over four hours. It's also noted that during this four hours, she enjoyed some cocktails and danced around like a psycho and just watched him die. 
According to the timeline, this happened at about 2 p.m. And then she called Al at 6.05 p.m. and told him what happened. And basically what she said, it was because, quote, he tried to make love to her. You can see where that's going. Ah, yes. She made the call at 6.05 and then about at 6.20 p.m., so 15 minutes later, Dr. Clifford Oliver arrived to the scene. Now, interesting part is that he would end up ruling that Henry had not been dead for hours, but merely maybe 30 minutes. So there's that. Oh. But she likes to, you know, make up stories. So who knows? So the trial came very quickly. It was in May and we would start to see more inconsistencies. So originally she sticks with the self-defense motivator, but moves from he was trying to make love to me to a full on rape allegation. Oh, wow. Fucking trash. So basically, though, this doesn't last too long because she does end up saying that she did shoot him out of rage because he was threatening to leave her type of thing. So kind of similar story there. Then her final story, the one she sticks with throughout the end of this, is that she says she's pregnant and was trying to tell Henry and that led to a argument slash scuffle. And that's how things got out of hand. Basically, she had said she needed to shoot him before he shot her type of situation. It's very similar to the plot line of the musical. Mm-hmm. This story would work. As expected, the jury was completely made up of men. They bought into everything Beulah was saying and felt sympathy for her. She was beautiful. The media loved her. Everybody loved her. And she was also a pregnant woman, and they didn't think pregnant women belonged in jail. It's true. So on May 25th, 1924, she was acquitted of all charges. That's like a month. Yeah. So Al would stand by Beulah's side throughout this whole thing. Even after finding out about the affair, even finding out she killed a man, everything. Supposedly she's pregnant with another dude's baby, whatever. He's still there. But shortly after all of this wrapped up, she divorced him. There's two reasons. Paper-wise, so her divorce documents, he, quote, abandoned her. But really, she was going around saying he was too slow and boring and, you know, bye, Al. That kind of shit. Right. Now, Beulah doesn't waste no time. She would remarry two more times in her lifetime. The next one would be Edward Harlib. He was a boxer. So I'm assuming she probably thought this was going to be more exciting. I don't know. This didn't last long, though. They were divorced after three months of being married. Damn. Yes. And she would also, after only being married for three months, walk away with a nice little settlement of $5,000, which in today's money is just over $76,000. Damn, okay. For a three-month marriage. That's time well spent. (laughs) I suppose. For her. After this, she married her last husband, who was Abel Marcus, and they were just married for a short time. There really wasn't too much on that relationship besides mentioning his name. Well, life would be cut short for Miss Beulah. Just uh, four years later, in 1928, at the age of just before turning 29, she came down with tuberculosis and would die at the Chicago Fresh Air Sanatorium. And her body would be transported back to Kentucky, where she was buried at Mount Pleasant Cumberland Presbyterian Church Cemetery. That's a really long name. It is. The last little tidbit for you here is apparently whoever engraved her headstone had a little bit of a typo. Oh. It had the wrong year on her death. So on there, it reflects as March 10th, 1927, but it was March 10th, 1928. Well, that sucks for her. Right? I'm like, well, boohoo. Oh, well. (laughs) So that's Miss Beulah and her crazy shenanigans. (laughs) 
kids. <laughs> I mean, at the end of Chicago, it seems like they they go on to live a very happy life. Other than this, it's, I prefer that because those aren't good outcomes. Right. This is a little bit more, a little bit more justice served. Right. But now to kind of wrap us up here on the episode, I have two more gals to mention and Jessica has two as well. Yeah. You want to like ping pong them since they're shorter? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Okay. So my person's name is Catherine Kitty Mall Abolic. And this poor girl, she didn't have a chance. She was married at age 15 and had a daughter who they know by the name of Tootsie. And basically, she was also known as Go to Hell Kitty or the Tiger Girl or the Wolf Woman. Ooh, I like the Wolf Woman. Because she attacks at night. Oh, okay. I guess I don't. Never mind. (laughs) It's said that her early reputation is that she was a consort of crooks. So, like, you know, she hung out with bad dudes. Hmm. It was also said that she would pack a pistol where girls would harbor their love letters. So her boobs. Um, I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, or her, I don't know. I don't know where people carry their love letters. I don't know. Like how people would put their phones in their bras, that type of thing. That's what I was thinking. That's as good as a guess as I could have. <laughs> so basically, she was known as the toughest of all the killers on Murderous Row. Because she was like, she was one of the few on Mur- Murderous Row that actually was like a life of crime. <laughs> Versus, like, I just killed my jealous lover or husband for something. Right. But apparently that didn't stop her from being very hospitable. In fact, she was known to give out currant buns. So, like, currant as in, like, the fruit. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And she was even quoted saying to Belva, the article quoted, says, Here, Miss Garter, she said with a welcoming smile, eyes crinkled and understanding, eat this and pretend it's chicken. It makes it easier to swallow. So basically, she was in there because she wasn't as lucky as Belva and Beulah. Basically, it was her and her common-law husband, Otto Malm. Malm? It's M-A-L-M, so like palm, but with an M. And Eric Norin. And basically, they were attempting to, like, loot or rob this, like, plant or factory. And these two security guards came around. And they're not quite sure who shot. There's, like, a story out there written by Gregory Perry. And it's supposed to be the retelling of this. And it's, like, it's one of the books on the murderous row topic. But it was said that this night watchman by the name of Edward Liam, who went by Eddie... And he was only 18. He's a little baby. Basically, they were patrolling and they turned. And as they were turning, their headlights caught her silhouette. And it made him go, like, who is that? So he gets out of the vehicle to go see who it is. Kitty is in the door. I think she was the lookout. And basically, then Otto comes to the door and shoots. We don't know if it was Kitty or Otto. They don't know. According to the story of the surviving, whose name was like Swindleham, and I didn't write it down, I apologize. He basically said that he he was sure that Otto shot because he thought Kitty was injured. But basically what happened is they shot and then Eddie staggered around and then fell down dead. But she would end up turning herself in. I think it was like the persuasion of like the fact that she had a little kid. She couldn't be on the run. That crime was on November 4th, 1923, and she turned herself in just a few days later. And she was found guilty at trial and was given a life sentence. Uh, But also, just so that you know, 
she had actually been in prison before for killing another person. Oh, and got out. Well, she got out because Governor Smalls was doing a campaign and was like, I pardon you because they're a woman. And it was like, you know, women don't kill. Hmm. It's like what the big sensationalization of this is. Women don't do these things. So because of that, she got out and then she killed. Also, she killed another inmate while she was in. So she got two life sentences and she died of pneumonia. Damn. Like just a few years later, Mm. like 1930-ish, 32-ish. Gotcha. So she had a short life as well, like Beulah. Wow. Well, our next girl that we're going to talk about is Sabella. Sabellaniti. She was actually born and raised in Italy. And eventually, of course, since we're talking about her, she did come over to the United States and resided in Illinois. She worked as a farmer. They had, you know, their own land and everything with her husband, Francisco. And he actually went missing in July of 1920. And uh, also was missing was their family savings. All of it. All $300 of that. Oh, damn. Yes. It was said that he was found dead and this would lead the authorities to charging her for the murder of her husband. She was the first woman of murderous row out of all this group since she went there in 1920. She definitely had an unfair court hearing because, for lack of better words, they thought she was ugly. They legit say that in headlines. It's disgusting. Mainly because... She just didn't fit into any of these social norms of like what they deemed as beautiful. There was even in the court documents, they said, quote, can you see that woman? No, she is not a woman. She is a fiend. She is not a woman. Okay, rude ass. What? Yeah. She had such a cool name. How could she not be amazing? Sapalaniti. And unlike Beulah, who and also Belva, who had their quick turnaround time, it actually took over a year for her to have her hearing. And Sabella didn't speak English, which whatever, but that meant she didn't even really know what was going on. All that was really no, like she just knew things were not good because you can still read body language and facial expressions and things like that. And then obviously she had to go back to jail afterwards. So she's like, OK, well, fuck my life. Because she didn't, you know, she spoke Italian, it actually took them a full day after the sentencing to get a translator to relay exactly what was going on. But even with that, though, the translator spoke a different dialect of Italian than she did. So there was still a language barrier, but she got the gist of it, obviously. And it was said that upon receiving the news that, you know, she was found guilty, she just passed the fuck out. She just fainted. I mean, I would, too. Yes. With her conviction, she broke that long streak that was going on for the acquittals. Before her, there was 29 acquittals. So I do have to mention something because, you know, there's no way this is cut and dry. There's a little more to this. So things were, they said, circumstantial at best. It was like really, really sketchy. And honestly, this is like, bitch didn't kill him. I have different theories. So that body that they found and said was the husband, they couldn't like 100% prove it was him. DNA and stuff didn't match, no nothing. They just pretty much went with it and was like, yes, it's him. Oh, shit. So I know it's shitty, but it kind of sounds like he took the savings money and took the fuck off. Mm. 
Possibly. Or he could have been murdered. Who knows? And then, you know, things happen. Maybe. But eventually there would be an appeal. A group of lawyers got together to work with Sabella and one was actually a woman, which I was kind of surprised to read considering like the time period, you know. And her name was Helen. And Helen decided to play into the society's, you know, way of thought of beauty and all of that because she knew it would help. Because let's face it, that's how the other two got off their charges. It's true. So she gave Sabella a makeover. She cut her long silver hair into that kind of like 1920s iconic popular bob thing that was going on at the time. And they also dyed her hair brown. Mm. She got her nails done and gave her some nicer clothes because Sabella didn't have a lot of money. So she couldn't afford anything that was like current and stuff. Plus, she didn't really give a flying fuck anyway. It wasn't something that was a priority to her. Mm -hmm. And Helen also taught her English. And as expected, this worked. The media turned their headlines from being total assholes about her to calling her a butterfly because she's pretty now, according to them. The Illinois Supreme Court would grant Sabella a retrial, but the date kept getting pushed back. And this ended up happening so many times that eventually the charges were dropped. Just like that. They're like, meh, it's fine. We're done. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, there was even, <laughs> there's literally articles that were like, makeup saved from the death penalty and all this crazy stuff. I'm just like, wow. So there's that one. Okie dokie. So my next one, I don't have a lot of information on, but I really wanted to mention her because the reason she went to jail, like, cracked me the fuck up. <laughs> so her name was Anne Pecoline. That's what we're going to call her. Or her name was Anna, I should say. And she was known as Big Anna. And she was the largest woman at the time on death row, or not on death row, and like the murderous row at the Cook County Jail. And she killed her husband because he called her fat. And well, he didn't really call her fat. He said he preferred slimmer women. So she killed him. Damn. Right? Like, the moral of this story is don't say fucked up shit to people because you don't know what's underneath it all. Mm-hmm. 100%. There could be bubbling rage. Literally. All right. Well, we have one more to quickly chat about before we wrap things up. Her nickname was Moonshine Mary. So Mary Wozniak was originally from Poland, but located to the U.S., more specifically LaGrange Park, Illinois. She was at the time 34 years old and a mom of three. Now, this is different than Sabella's case because she definitely killed a dude. Just saying. Whether she meant to or not, she definitely did kill, dude. So the man she killed was not a boyfriend or anything like a lot of these people. His name was George L. Rutten, and Mary had a speakeasy that was out of her house. So let's start with that. Go for her. Look at her go. Right? And George was a patron of hers. So no romantic involvement. He just came to her speakeasy. And it was said that on the night of his death, he had about five to seven shots of moonshine and then staggered out. Makes sense. Probably drunk, you know, but no, not just drunk. Shortly after that, he would collapse and die. <laughs> I'm thinking of like Ron Swanson, like <laughs> with the moonshine, just like tips it up. It's came back. <laughs> <laughs> the moonshine, of course, had methanol in it, which was the culprit of George's death. So it goes without saying that it was methanol poisoning, and that's actually has a high toxicity rate for humans. Um, it said as little as 10 milliliters of pure methanol like is ingested. It can break down into formic acid, which causes permanent blindness. It uh, fucks with your optic nerve. And starting at 30 milliliters is potentially fatal. So whatever he was drinking had, I guess, 
30 milliliters at least of it in it. Yeah. I know that's like a whole thing that there is in this time. There was like a lot of these methanol poisonings because of moonshine and whatnot. And not just the moonshine because the government was corrupt and they put it in the alcohol that was so that they could kill people. So they would stop drinking. Fucking facts, people. Probably that. (laughs) (laughs) I've watched enough history documentation on the prohibition to know that the government literally figured it out and was like, boom. And then people were like, oh, shit, we're dying. Yeah, there were so many people who died. There's a drunk history on it, too, just so you know, about the dude who started prohibition. So there you go. Get on Hulu. Watch that shit. So because of this, she would be found guilty. And uh, here's the kicker. Her sentence was one year to life, which I'm like, wow, talk about a broad, vague, huge range. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, what, what is that with good time served? Like three months? Fuck, I don't know. Six months? Yeah. I was just like, that could be one year. That could be like 60 years. What the fuck? Okay. Okay, courts. But also, last little fun fact, she was the first woman to be convicted of selling fatal moonshine. I like it. All right. So that is going to go ahead and wrap us up today. We thought this would be a fun topic to tell you guys about. We hope you enjoyed it. Maybe learn something new. Who knows? If you guys have a particular murderess from Murderess Row that uh, is your favorite or you find interesting, feel free to share their stories with us. We would love to read more because we did not touch on all of them. We just kind of chose our favorites for honorable mentions on this topic. Yes, very true. Someone died. Someone died. Someone got hung. I know this is the true story. Someone got hung Mm -hmm. and actually put forth to the, like, Illinois legislation that they needed to start having women on their juries Mm. because of this. Because men are assholes, apparently, at this time and are like, oh, you're ugly? Obviously, you killed this person. Oh, you're beautiful? You couldn't do this. So they were like, maybe we need some, like, level-headed women. Yeah. So yeah, if you know which one that is, uh, feel free to educate us and tell us about that. But we are going to wrap things up for today. We will be back on Thursday for probably a patron select, maybe a stabby. I don't know. We have some cool episodes coming to you guys, though. So we'll see you then. Yes. Bye. Bye. You're welcome for that. (laughs) 